Hi, it's Allegra from PVOX and welcome to today's episode where we are talking about termination of pregnancy. Estimates tell us that between one quarter and one third of Australian women will have a termination of pregnancy in their lifetime. Today, we are going to learn about the management of termination of pregnancy from our guest, Dr. Nicole Gestalden, who is a termination of pregnancy provider in Queensland. Welcome, Nicole. Hi, Allegra. Tell us a bit about your career to date. Um, I have been a provider of terminations of pregnancy uh, in Queensland and along the eastern seaboard, really, for about um, 20 years. And um, I got into this area. There was no formal education uh, for this area back then. I uh, pursued a, a termination provider back then. His name was Dr. David Grunman. He ran uh, a few clinics, uh, the Planned Parenthood clinics, and basically I, I door-knocked him and said, teach me how to provide terminations for women. And um, and so I, yeah, I, I learned under him and um, I've been working in the area ever since. Wow, that's very interesting. So in December 2018, termination of pregnancy was removed from the criminal code in Queensland, which is where you mostly work. Yes. How has that changed your work? Um, well, I think the most profound effect was walking in on the first day after the enactment of the laws and to not come across protesters. That was a pretty exciting day. Now we have um, safe access zones of yep. 150 metres. And for the past 20 years, my daily occurrence has been to walk through or ride through wow. um, you know, protesters that have all sorts of things to say to you. Okay, so that was a profound effect for me but also for the patients that are coming through and yeah. um, no longer getting the harassment. And that was an absolute delight for all of the people that work with us. Um, I think the other thing that we have definitely noticed is that there has been um, better access to the service via GP referral. There, as part of the legislation, conscientious objectors uh, to abortion are required to on refer to someone who is not a conscientious um, objector. And, um, you know, because what was happening, you know, particularly in small towns, if there was one person who objected, you know, essentially those women were getting blocked from access to termination. Yeah. We are seeing a lot less of that now. And we're also, there's also some recourse if we hear those stories yeah. um, that that is occurring. Um, the other thing is there's been, and, and I think this is a generational shift as well, there has been a general decrease in the stigma surrounding abortion. Yeah. And I have observed a change in the language that women use, much less shame language yeah. um, surrounding abortion. Yeah. And that's been wonderful as well to witness. Wow, that's really good to hear. So it sounds like that um, rural women are sort of slowly getting better access in Queensland. Absolutely. And also women who are presenting... Um, um, have a, have an, a warmer environment that they can come into because of the safe access zone. So thank goodness, that's and really finally. good. Yeah. yeah. Um, so education around termination of pregnancy can be limited at medical schools. So I'd like you to take us through the workup and management, starting as always with a history. What are the key points uh, when a woman presents for a termination? I think the most useful information from the history is obviously to assess the gestational age appropriately. Um, that can be done by collecting information on the last period and pre pregnancy symptoms, seeing whether the patient has had a urine or a serum HCG. We're interested in whether there's been any abnormal bleeding uh, or any pain throughout the pregnancy period that could point us into the direction of pregnancy complications, you know, specifically things like ectopic. Yep. 
Um, we're obviously we take down the uh, patient's gravity and parity, and um, all of this can point to potential difficulties that can arise in theatre. So you know, say problems with cervical dilatation or mm-hmm. cesarean section scarring, or um, you know, a history of past uterine atony, uh, anatomical variations. The list is kind of endless there. Yeah. Um, we also take a general medical and surgical history to see if there are any major issues that would impact on the operation and the anaesthetic. Um, and again, so many things here, but potentially, you know, bleeding diapheses, epilepsy, mental health diagnoses, brittle asthma, allergies, past reactions to anaesthetics, that sort of stuff all has to be taken into account. We um, will collect information on the day with the patient, or whether they're up to date with their cervical screening and um, their sexually transmitted infection uh, mm-hmm. screening as well because we offer both of those services on the day of the procedure. We also spend a, a fair bit of time discussing contraception, both yep. current and future, so what went wrong to, you know, that they had the unplanned pregnancy and also what, you know, what might be a better option moving forward. The need for counselling is um, usually assessed prior to referral, but oftentimes we are the party that points the patients in the direction of that. Um, we are so lucky in Brisbane that we have children by choice. Yep. Um, they are a counselling service. They offer face-to-face or phone counselling and they're an independent not-for-profit organisation and they provide information on all pregnancy off, uh, options. So we're very lucky to have them. Yeah, oh, that's good. And anything else for the history or do you think that mainly covers? I think that's mainly yeah. it, yeah. Yeah, great. And what about examination? Um, well, abdominal examination is the obvious starting point, um, and it's very often overlooked prior to the referral. A, a simple abdominal exam can often clarify gestational age when the last menstrual period is uncertain, mm-hmm. and that can easily prevent delayed referral and the access problems that can come with that. So please lay your hands on their bellies, <laughs> please. Um, we then utilise ultrasound, and that's either transabdominal, transvaginal, or both. We, um, you know, to clarify the gestational age and to identify any pregnancy complications. Um, the anaesthetist is also going to undertake a preoperative physical examination. Yep. That's it. And how about um, investigation? So you, you just mentioned ultrasound. Oh, so uh, are the investigations done on the day or do you need to do them beforehand? Some um, of the patients who are referred by their GP, they do come in with an ultrasound, but predominantly they are done on the day. Mm-hmm. Um, we have the capacity to do rhesus testing yep. um, on site. Uh, but again, sometimes that pathology results do come with them. If the patient comes via the GP, they've often had both rhesus testing and their STI screening. But again, it's stuff that we can all do on the day. Um, in general, I think most practitioners would require a haemoglobin and a blood group for procedures over the 16-week mark. Mm-hmm. That's because of the increased risk of hemorrhage. Yeah. Okay. Um, so broadly speaking, the management options are medical and surgical. Which would you say is more common? Well, surgical procedures remain far more common in our practice and they account for about 85 to 90% of terminations, although the uptake of the medical terminations has increased over the years, uh, particularly in regional areas, mm-hmm. and that's for obvious access reasons. Yeah, yeah. Are there any contraindications to either option? There are, and I, I should start with the medical terminations. Yeah. Um, the contraindications to that Firstly, include being of a gestation greater than nine weeks. Yep. The uh, procedure is not available under those circumstances. 
we obviously uh, cannot proceed with a medical termination if it's a suspected or confirmed ectopic pregnancy or if there's an IUD in situ, that would need to be removed first. Okay. Um, if there's any clinical evidence of infection, that would need yep. to be treated first. In terms of medical conditions that the patient might be suffering from, adrenal failure or long-term corticosteroid use is considered a contraindication. That's because mifepristone is an anti-glucocorticoid. And um, so those with adrenal insufficiency can suffer from a cortisol deficit in its mm -hmm. presence. Um, for obvious bleeding reasons, a hemorrhagic disorder or being on anticoagulant therapy would preclude you from having a medical termination and uh, an allergy to either of the medications involved, so mifepristone or misoprostol. Yep, yep. There are also circumstances where you'd be cautious about providing a medical termination in women who have severe anemia, although mm -hmm. a mild chronic anemia would be fine. Yeah. Uh, or any serious systemic illness would obviously need to be individually determined. With breastfeeding, there is not enough data to support the safety of the use of mifepristone in that situation. Yeah. So we use that with great caution. There's some small trials that seem to indicate that it is not problematic but we can't lean on that yet. Yep. Um, and misoprostol, the other medication, can theoretically cause diarrhoea in the infant because it does pass to the breast milk. Mm -hmm. With uh, surgical terminations, obviously the contraindications that are related to you know, the two medications used in a medical uh, you know, aren't relevant. Mm -hmm. Surgical terminations are available and on request now in Queensland up to 22 weeks gestation. Yep. Um, we need the patient to attend the clinic fasted and to be deemed fit for both anaesthetic and surgery. If they do have something like a hemorrhagic condition, that's usually managed in concert with the patient's haematologist throughout the perioperative period. Mm -hmm. um, so talk us through medical management. All right. Um, a medical termination consists of the use of two different medications. Mifepristone, this is uh, the medication which blocks the action of progesterone. It stops the growth of the pregnancy. It primes the uterus and the cervix for the oncoming prostaglandin. The prostaglandin that we use is, uh, is a misprostol, and it induces uterine contractions. It softens and dilates the cervix, and essentially it causes cramping, bleeding, and expulsion of the tissue. Um, the way the medical is dispensed, on the initial clinic visit, we give the patient the mifepristone, 200 milligrams, and that's just taken orally at the centre. We also dispense the misoprostol um, with clear instructions on how to use it, but that is actually taken by the patient at home 24 to 48 hours later. Mm -hmm. um, so the misoprostol, it's 800 micrograms. It's self-administered buccally. So they, we ask them to place it between the cheek and the gum, leave it there for 30 minutes before they rinse it down. And the miscarriage tends to occur at home within the 24 to 48-hour period. We um, do require a second clinic visit, and that is usually two to three weeks later. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, in terms of what happens for the patient at home, the side effects really are mostly due to the misoprostol and they are, you know, unpleasant. Nausea, vomiting, myalgia, rigors, abdominal pain, diarrhea. Yeah. But they are generally mild and, you know, reasonably short-lived. What we expect to see is bleeding and cramping. 
Um, almost half of the women begin experiencing bleeding and cramps within an hour of the misoprostol. 90% will start experiencing it within four hours and almost all within okay. the 24-hour period. Bleeding can be very heavy uh, yep. with clots and the heaviest bleeding tends to occur in the first few days following the misoprostol administration. Cramping can range from mild to severe, but usually lasts less than 24 hours. We um, do cover pain management at the clinic, so we advise rest, hot packs. We um, instruct the uh, patients on uterine massage, and we also provide analgesics, which are you know ibuprofen and also paracetamol and codeine. For these reasons, the amount of bleeding and the amount of pain, we do also recommend that they have a support person present mm -hmm. to help them through that period. The um, cramping and the bleeding tends to decrease after expulsion of the gestational sac. And um, although the bleeding can persist with half of the patients still having some spotting or some bleeding at the two-week follow-up yep. and a small number still having light bleeding or spotting up until their next period, which can be up to six weeks later. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and talk us through surgical management. Well... In, well, okay, so surgical management. In the first trimester of pregnancy, the usual method is suction curatage. Mm -hmm. um, that is offered under, well, you know, for a small amount of patients, they choose a local anaesthetic. For most people, it is either IV sedation or a general anaesthetic. Yep. We use cervical dilators to, um, to uh, using rigid dilators to dilate the cervix. We introduce a rigid or flexible cannula. Uh, into mm -hmm. the uterine cavity, yep. and um, we use electric suction to evacuate the contents of the uterus. Uh, it is rare these days that sharp curatage is used. Uh, a second trimester termination is a little bit of a different procedure. It's a process called dilation and evacuation, and that means that the cervix is dilated to a greater degree than with a first trimester termination, and the products of conception are removed either using large uh, vacuettes or using forceps. Um, we, we achieve the level of cervical dilatation required for a second trimester termination via a number of means. We either use a prostaglandin, usually misoprostol, and that can be administered two to three hours prior to uh, going to the operating theatre. Mm -hmm. um, or we can use osmotic dilators, and uh, their brand names are Laminaria and Dilapan-S. Um, that often requires an additional clinic visit and procedures. For example, gestations over 16 weeks are usually managed with uh, two and sometimes three theatre visits over successive days. Mm -hmm. The first visit is to dilate the cervix and introduce the osmotic dilators, and the second is to complete the evacuation process. Um, we often will use, uh, at the over 16-week mark, intrafetal digoxin to mm -hmm. ensure fetal demise. And this also assists with softening of the fetal tissues for evacuation. Mm -hmm. There are some practitioners that use mifepristone um, 24 hours prior to facilitate dilation. Mm -hmm. um, with surgicals, although we don't use antibiotic prophylaxis for medical terminations, we do use them for surgical terminations. We also instruct the women on... Um, strategies for minimising the risk of post-operative uh, infection. So things like pelvic rest, no tampons, no baths or swimming for a week. Mm -hmm. um, the, the factors that uh, predominantly cause infection post-termination are, well, chlamydia and BV are the ones that have been implicated. So for that reason, our choice of antibiotics is um, 
azithromycin or doxycycline and metronidazole we usually use a suppository there. As the prophylaxis? That's right. Oh, okay, yeah. prophylaxis, yep. yeah. And um, we have a, you know, a screen and treat kind of approach. So we're treating at the time, we're screening, we'll get the results later and we can act on them with, you know, further information and, and partner. Partner. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But they have Delica. essentially completed their treatment exactly. because they're having Exactly, the yeah. yeah. And as long as they've stuck with the no sexual intercourse for the yeah. first week, then we've got them in that period. So, yeah. Yeah. So um, what is involved in terms of follow-up and post-surgical um, management care? You've touched on the STI screening, but what else would be involved? Um, well, to be honest, for um, post-surgical termination check is not required unless the patient is experiencing complications. Mm-hmm. Um, the main complications that um, we would watch out for are things like retained products of conception and infection. They're the most common yeah. ones. Um, the accepted rate of retained products would be about one in a hundred. Is that for surgical? Surgical, yeah. 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 And um, for infection, it's about one in 200. Um, a continuing pregnancy is pretty rare, one in 500. Mm-hmm. And the hemorrhage risk is more like one in a few thousand. Yep. Um, cervical stenosis and intrauterine adhesions were previously cited as at an incidence of one in 500, but it's now very rare since the move away from sharp curatage. Mm. So these are the accepted complication rates, but obviously very significantly according to, you know, the skill and the experience of the surgeon. Yeah, yeah. The, um, the symptoms that one might see with either retained products or um, an endometritis, it's heavy or persistent bleeding, prolonged or strong cramping, tenderness uh, on PV or dyspareunia, mm-hmm. and fever is less common. Um, one way of, uh, well, a tip in terms of discerning which might be present uh, if you don't have access to an ultrasound is that, you know, the retained tissue is more likely to present in the first week and the endometritis a little bit later. Mm-hmm. And if you have um, retained products, do you then go back for surgical management or...? That's that's not a fait accompli. So mm-hmm. often we can manage uh, retained tissue with a repeat dose of misoprostol. Yep. Um, but there are some times that, yes, that does lead to a repeat procedure. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. With, um, in terms of treating endometritis, um, you know, antibiotic therapy yes. is obviously the way to go. If you think there isn't an STI implicated um, via screening or history, then you're looking at, you know, augmented Eurofort and doxycycline for 14 days. If you do think that the STI might be implicated, then obviously the keftriaxone for the gonorrhea and the azithromycin or doxycycline for um, chlamydia. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I guess we'll move through to some other questions now. So if you're a junior doctor on a rural relieving term and are asked by a patient about termination or abortion, where should you direct them? I think you should first find out the patient's preference for medical or surgical termination. Um, there's a lot of medical termination providers and you might find one locally that you can refer to, um, keeping in mind that it depends how remote you are. Um, the patient needs to have access to a facility that can provide a DNC within one hour's travel time. Um, 
if the patient prefers a surgical termination, then find out which is your nearest city centre that can provide it. So centres are located throughout Queensland from Gold Coast, Brisbane, Sunshine Coast, up to Rockhampton and to Townsville. Mm-hmm. Although those regional centres, they only have a list every fortnight. Mm-hmm. So depending on gestational age, a larger city centre might be the more appropriate referral point. Yep. And are there specific guidelines that are widely followed? The US has a National Abortion Federation, or NAF, and the UK has the Royal College of Obstetrics and Gynaecology, and they both have online guidelines and education modules that are very useful. Those are the ones that existing providers have utilised over the years. Since legalisation, Queensland Health has come on board and they have come up with clinical guidelines and they can be accessed via their uh, Clinical Excellence Termination of Pregnancy website. So you can just Google that, all of those online, yeah, really. Okay. Absolutely. And I'll just make sure to put those in the podcast notes as well for our listeners to follow up if they're interested in learning further. Fabulous. So um, what are some common myths about termination and how do you discuss these with patients? I think um, the one that gets mentioned most frequently is, will I be able to have children? So a link to infertility. Um, I want to stress that uh, you know, a termination of pregnancy is not linked to infertility. Um, uh, for reference there, the Guttmacher Institute, which is in the US, it collects international data on abortion and it states that abortions performed in the first trimester pose virtually no long-term risk of problems such as infertility, ectopic pregnancy, spontaneous abortion or miscarriage or birth defect and little or no risk of preterm or low birth weight deliveries. Um, I think the second and third most common myths that tend to bubble up are things like um, uh, the old one about breast cancer. Okay. So um, it is not linked to breast cancers or other cancers. It is not linked to long-term mental health problems, which is certainly one that... um, some of the anti-choice establishments lean on. Mm -hmm. So these statements are all supported by, you know, the UK's um, college and our own RANSCOG. Um, In fact, around the world, reproductive health, anti-cancer, mental health, psychological organisations, they outright reject these associations. Yeah. Um, The essential fact that I want to stress to those listening to this podcast is about the safety of abortions and that a first trimester abortion is one of the safest medical procedures and complications are rare. So when speaking to patients about this, I I try to contextualise the risk, acknowledging that there is no such thing as risk-free surgery, but also acknowledging that the risk that they, say, take on the roads daily far exceeds what they're going to experience on the day in Mm -hmm. the clinic. That's very, I think, handy advice to have those sorts of suggestions or or things to be able to say to patients so that you can give them appropriate comparisons. Um, So what would you say are some of your troubleshooting points? So, for example, what should you do if a woman is unsure on the day? Um, I think once you've worked in the area for a while, you do become quite attuned to you know, particular indicators of uncertainty and indecision and coercion. Mm-hmm. Um, and that just happens organically throughout the co- process of the consultation. Um, in general, I think it is essential to have a very low threshold for referral 
to um, for decision making counselling. Yeah, you know, generally speaking, a termination of pregnancy it's not emergency surgery. Yeah, it can wait, and although it can be very inconvenient for the patient to delay because they've taken time off and and you know distance travelled and all of that, mm-hmm. it is of the utmost importance that she just takes her time with that decision, whatever time of that course. is needed. Yeah, before she proceeds. Yeah, yeah, okay. So tell me, what is involved in terms of follow-up and post-medical management care? Right. For a medical termination, follow-up is actually considered essential. Um, we want to uh, assess whether this um, medical termination has is complete. So what is required is either a negative or a faint urine HCG or declining serial quantitative beta-HCGs. Um, you must keep in mind that if you're just relying on urine, uh, the urine HCG can be positive for up to 30 or more days. Mm-hmm. Um, we're looking for a resolution of pregnancy symptoms. Uh, we will take note of the clinical history of heavy bleeding and cramping. And again, keeping in mind that the spotting can last up to 30 days or more. Um, if you're lucky enough to have access to an ultrasound, then obviously the absence of a gestational sac. Yep. is going to um, uh, indicate a complete medical termination. However, you are, will more frequently than not at the two-week checkup see residual tissue and clots present, but that is not necessarily... Uh, that doesn't indicate that a surgical intervention is required yep. at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing that we do at the medical follow-up is we touch again on contraception we review if a method has already been commenced the ones that are usually commenced at the initial visit are things like depo and mm-hmm. implanon um, if they've started on the oral contraceptive pill or nuvering then that's usually commenced just the day after the misoprostol medication mm-hmm. uh, sometimes at the uh, two-week checkup we can insert the iud or the mirena um, if the pregnancy can be excluded if we are still having problems with bleeding and a lot of tissue within the uterus, we would tend to defer that until the next period. Yeah. We need to obviously exclude complications. So incomplete abortion tends to occur in up to 4% of patients, continuing pregnancy in up to 3% of patients. Uh, excessive bleeding requiring a transfusion occurs at the incidence of one or two in a thousand. Mm-hmm. And infection is generally cited about um, one in 200 so the warning signs uh, that you'd want to pick up on, prolonged heavy vaginal bleeding. So that means soaking more than two pads per hour f- over two successive hours. Yep. Severe cramping mm-hmm. that's unrelieved by analgesia. Having fever, chills, malaise lasting more than six hours. You can get you know, a little bit of that just post-misoprostal use. Abnormal vaginal discharge and severe abdominal pain. So there are times, obviously, when we do intervene surgically, and that is only if there is heavy or prolonged bleeding, although often we have gone down the misoprostol route first and Mm -hmm. tried to administer another dose to see if that um, helps things. Or obviously, if there's an ongoing viable pregnancy or a persistent gestational sac that has not moved, then we will proceed to surgery. Okay. That's a really good summary. Thank you. Um, so if we move to our next point, how can you become a termination provider? All right. Well, um, there is an online course to become a licensed prescriber of MS2STEP. So that is a provider of medical terminations. Um, 
that's accessed via www.ms2step.com.au. Um, you, you will need to uh, go through that course mm-hmm. and then you will need to organise and have an affiliation with a licensed dispensing pharmacist. Uh, you need to check that your indemnity insurance is um, suitably caught up and um, obviously you're going to need access to a 24-hour local emergency service in case an emergency DNC or transfusion is required. Uh, one of the things that Murray Stopes, who uh, provide MS2 Step, they um, have a give access to a one three hundred uh, number, which is a twenty four hour aftercare number. So MS Health will provide that, so that um, even as a provider, you will not be on call mm-hmm. twenty four hours for that. Um, there is a uh, Ranscog Advanced Training Module on contraception and abortion and um, part of that is uh, actually about medical terminations. So ONGs would need a current registration and to be enrolled as a prescriber with MS Health to provide uh, medical terminations. As for surgical terminations, they they are also part of the uh, Ranscog Advanced Training Module on contraception and abortion. Um, it cites that, um, you know, training can occur at public hospitals and specialised abortion facilities. Mm-hmm. Um, so a place like where I work at Greenslopes Day Surgery, I also work at Nambour Day Surgery and uh, Murray Stopes International is another um, option there. Uh, the, the demand is that you um, need to access a minimum number of services and I can see how that might be problematic within the public health sector. Yep. Uh, because you need, you know, a hundred surgical terminations less than 14 weeks and, um, and access to terminations over 14 weeks and complex cases and, and things like that as, uh, as all part of the, the training required. Um, but yes, certainly getting in contact with, uh, either myself or one of the other providers that is, we'd, we'd love to help out in terms of providing more. Um, access. Mm. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for covering um, all of this information for us today. It's certainly really helpful um, as a junior doctor and, and just finishing medical school to learn about an area that's that's not so well touched on, but that is so important in the management of women's health. So thank you again, Dr. Gestalden, for joining pleasure, us today. Allegra. 